for as long as I can remember, I have always wanted a motorcycle. In particular, I love Triumph bikes. They've got this classic retro British styling to them that is just so cool. But I also love cruisers too. And and all kinds of cruisers, whether the Yamaha, or the Honda, or the Harley, which is the penultimate of cruiser. And I like street bikes. I like street bikes too. You know, upright, quick, adept, real nimble. I think that really the only bike that I don't like is racing bikes, and that's because I sat on a few of them. And let's just say they are not built for people that are shaped like me. Other than that, I, I love all bikes. I, I remember going to the Toronto International Bike Show with my dad several years ago, and it was an amazing experience just seeing all these bikes from all these different manufacturers and different stylings. It was super cool. I remember going to a bike shop in the city of Hamilton. I would go there almost weekly. I don't go anymore, and you'll find out why in a second. Um... I would go visit a bike shop in my city and I would sit on a bike and I'd close my eyes and I had this fantasy in my head of ripping up the streets on a Thruxton or a cafe racer or cruising on the highway. I've always wanted a bike. Or at least I thought I did. <laughs> at least I thought I did. And see, the fantasy in my head is Fantasy Adam on a motorcycle is like a Canadian evil Knievel, you know, strutting like Elvis in a red and white, no blue, because I'm Canadian, motorcycle outfit. I've got quick reflexes. I'm brave. I can sail through the air with the coolness of Steve McQueen, the open road ahead of me, the roar of the engine. The reality is I'm five and a half feet tall. I'm 260 none of your business pounds and I have the dexterity of Poe, the Kung Fu Panda, before he finds out he is the Dragon Warrior. And the real story is I'm at District Conference in the camp parking lot, surrounded by fellow pastoral friends and peers. And I'm on Paul's 1984 bike. I have stalled it out four times. And then I finally get it to work. And then to my shock, humiliation, horror, and dismay, I pop the wheel and careen into the pathway of a tree. Nearly crash while Paul screams unto God to save his bike and I scream to Jesus to save my life. It was a horrible experience. And as my life flashed before my eyes, I discovered this. The fantasy is always easier, less complicated than reality. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a great day today. It's crazy how fast the summer has gone by, hasn't it? I mean, it just blew past me. My little boy's in school now. That's why this episode is a few days late. Today was the first week of school here in Ontario, and my little man, Judah, is in grade one. It's wild how fast time time flies. He's in grade one. We're so thankful to God for keeping his hand on him. But it's been a pretty busy week for our family. A bunch of big changes to our schedule. And hence this episode coming a couple of days later than normal. But I appreciate you understanding. Today we're continuing an idea that we began last week. Last week we took a break from the typical challenging leadership and capacity increasing content that is become the nature of the Restorationist podcast. And we've 
try to have more devotional content to inspire faith and speak hope into our hearts. So I don't know about you, because sometimes I'm, I'm going through life, and we, as we talked about last episode, I'm going through life and I'm like, who's in charge of things around here? Because I don't like how things are. Who actually has the final say over all the crazy stuff that's going on in my life? And today, we're going to plow a little deeper into the answer that the God of heaven and earth, he's the one that has the final say over our life and what that actually looks like for our faith. But before we get into the story of Exodus again, I want to take a look at an old, very interesting and strange Egyptian story called The Tale of King Cheops Court. And in the tale of King Cheops Court, we run into this man by the name of Eubaner. And Eubaner is having the worst day ever. He is having a horrible, no good, awful, really bad day. And he's not used to having days like this because he is the high priest of Egypt. But he has discovered that his wife has been cheating on him with a commoner. And this, this is very humiliating to you, Boehner, because it's one thing for a man of that status to have his wife commit adultery on him, but she has fallen in love with a man who has multiple levels of social status lower than he is. And so he must resolve both this public and private shame. And the only way that my man Yabaner knows how to do this is through his weird abracadabra magic stuff. And so he goes in, he goes into his little magic lab and he makes a crocodile out of wax, drags it to the river behind his house and poof, it becomes a real crocodile. And then he has this discussion with this crocodile. He's like, hey, do you know who I am? I'm the high priest. I need you to do me a favor. And this favor is, is going to be good for you if you do it. You know, I'll owe you. I need you to handle some issues at home. And the crocodile's like, yeah, yeah, dude, I got you. I got your back, bro. No worries. Crocodile goes into the house, waits for this man to come over to see Eubaner's wife jumps out from around the corner once the man crosses the threshold, eats Yabaner's wife, eats this guy, and then goes back into the river and hangs out to talk to Yabaner. And then once the job is done, Yabaner knows, he hears the screams and the cries, he sees that crocodile kind of like slither back out into the river. He goes back to the river, grabs the crocodile by the tail, and Shazam! The crocodile is wax once again. Now, if you remember last episode, a question we asked after we looked at another strange Egyptian story, anyone notice a problem here? Anyone notice any uncomfortable parallels? Anything sound very similar to things that we have heard before? And if you've said yes, you're absolutely correct because... In Exodus chapter 4, we see a continuation of Moses' burning bush experience with God, and he's arguing with God. And God has said already to him in chapter 3 that he is going to use Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses says, you know, uh, who should I say he sent me? And, and God said unto Moses, this is in chapter 3, tell them I am that I am. 
the I am has sent me unto you. And in last episode, we said that I am means self-existent one, ultimate authority, but that I am is also a verb. It, it speaks to presence, that God is active, that he is involved, that there's going to be this contest between Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the God of heaven and earth. And we're going to figure out that when God gets involved with people, he has the ultimate authority and say over all things. But this statement, this declaration of how big, how great God is, and that he is going to reveal himself and his presence is going to become active and involved is not enough for Moses. So Moses answered and said, this is chapter four now, behold, they will not believe me or hearken to my voice. They will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, what is in thine hand? And he said, a rod or a stick. He said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thy hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became the rod again. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. So the parallels are clear now. Now having taken a look at the story of the tale of the King Cheops court, the parallels are clear now. And like we faced with last week, or last episode, I should say, we got to face a charge to the integrity of the biblical story. Who's copying who? Now, this one is admittedly a whole lot easier to figure out. And that's because there is no archaeological or historical evidence that Yubaner ever existed at any point in Egyptian history. And further, in examining the document itself, we know from looking at the tale of King Cheops Court that this story was never actually taken seriously by Egypt as history. Now, if you remember or recall English class and talking about literature, talking about genre in, in, in class, you understand that genre is how we classify literature. It's, it's how we identify what a book is. So things like poetry, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. And when you study the tale of King Cheops Court, you discover that it is mythic narrative. Mythic narrative. In other words, it's fiction. It's a fantasy story. Egyptians never considered the tale of King Cheops' court to be historically true. It was a mythic narrative. It's a story about what they most love. It was a fantasy of what they wanted life to be like, what they wished was true, what they desired for, what they wanted to see happen. And the tale of King Cheops' court is not the only story that is like this. The culture, the Egyptian world is full of these myths of magicians and priests turning inanimate objects into animals and then back into inanimate objects again. But like the tale of King Cheops Court, these stories were only ever fiction, myth, and fantasy. Their narrative genre was only ever fiction. But Exodus is a whole lot different. Exodus as a book doesn't fall into the fantasy category. It bears all the markings of Hebrew history. In other words, the writer of Exodus was claiming to write about real things that happened to real people. He was not writing a fictional account. He was not trying to structure things to encapsulate the deepest desires of the Hebrew people in mythic prose form. No. 
And he was trying to say this actually happened. And archaeological evidence testifies to the veracity of Exodus. And that's maybe another episode for another time. But names of places in the Bible directly correspond to names of places that only appear together in one time period of Egyptian history, the time period when Israel was packing their stuff and heading out. On and on it goes. My point is, is that Exodus' stake in the ground is that it claims to be truly retelling historical events as they actually happened. So here's the mic drop moment for me when I was studying this. Egypt's fantasy was to make inanimate objects become animals and then turn them back into inanimate objects again. And God in Exodus does in reality what Egypt can only imagine in their fantasy. That's what's so powerful about what happened to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 and then obviously later on in his interactions with Pharaoh is that God does in reality what Egypt could only fantasize about doing in their life, their world, their culture. Moses was raised in an Egyptian household, we all know, and he knew the stories. He would have known the stories. And here God at the burning bush is doing in real life what only the magicians of Egypt could dream of doing. And it freaked him out a little bit because he ran away from the snake. And as Moses picked up the snake and it became a rod with God, myth became fact, fiction and fantasy became real life, real world history. God does in reality what Egypt could only do in fantasy. Egypt has always, in the New Testament, been typified as the bondage of sin and the lies of the world. Always has. And like Egypt, the world, the culture, the secular society that we find ourselves in is a sham. The underpinnings and worldview of our secular culture is a sham. The world can offer so many things and offer the promise of many things, but it actually cannot deliver on those things. And I, I, I understand this sounds like sermonizing. You're like, Adam, we're all leaders. We get it. We understand this. This isn't the first night of youth camp. We're influencers here. We understand this. But do we really? Honestly, sorry to be confrontational there with that tone. But, but do we actually get that? Because our culture has its own myths, right? And, and superhero narratives abound right now in, in movies and for example, Avengers is all about humanism and human genius and humans standing against a seemingly omnipotent force that's bringing judgment to the world and unifying together while acknowledging the intersectionality of the many characters. While the, that, that movie franchise is rife with postmodern themes, not all of them bad or evil, the overarching narrative of, of the superhero movies that have been exploding across theaters, across the world, across North America, is that humans save the world, that humans come together and humans solve the greatest problems through technology, through acknowledging differences, through becoming a more inclusive and open society. It's an incredibly spiritual message. Music and performance talent shows tell us that the best thing that could ever happen to talented people is that they become famous. It used to be that they become rich, but obviously now in our world, 
fame and wealth go together. And so music and performance talented shows, of which there are thousands, tell us that the best thing that could ever happen to somebody who's really talented is that everybody knows their name. And social media reinforces this idea because so much of our affirmation now comes from masses of people that we don't even know. A fellow Canuck by the name of Justin Bieber talked about this a little while ago. He talked about the depression and the massive drug problems he developed for attaining what everyone else in our culture is seemingly looking for. And whether you are a teen, a young adult, or a seasoned leader, there is this pull. There is this pull of culture where culture tells us it is able to speak to the greatest human needs with these seemingly elegant, simple solutions. But whatever the world offers or claims it can do is fantasy. It's myth. That's, that's why John wrote, do not love the world or the things of the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And this verse terrifies me. The world is passing away. Another translation says, the world is fading away along with everything everyone craves. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The world's fading away. The promises of our culture, they're like cotton candy. They taste good, but then they immediately disappear as soon as they are consumed by us. Now, I'm not here to sneak a breach. I'm not here to pastor you or tell you what to watch. That's not my job. But for goodness sake, whatever you watch or don't watch, whatever you listen to or don't listen to, don't buy into the underlying premises of popular culture. No matter where you sit on the political spectrum, left, right, center, libertarian, socialist, no matter if you are a rabid consumer of podcasts or a rabid consumer of movies or TV shows, all of it, all productions of the culture that do not have the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ruling and reigning of Jesus as king of the universe, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church in it as its driving force, all of it is tales of King Cheops Court. It's all wax crocodiles that never can actually come to life and deal with your haters, your foes, or your shame. The world only provides fantasy. But what God promises, he will perform. What God does actually happens. Now, we asked the same question last episode, but we're going to ask it again. Why did God choose the stick, snake, stick thing as the first miracle? Why this polemic? Why was God using one of Egypt's biggest claims against them again? Exodus 4, 5 that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Remember last episode, proving who was the real I am? Knowing who the real I am was, wasn't just for Egypt. It was for Israel too. 
And the underlying thought is this. If God can do what Egypt can, if God can turn like sticks into snakes back into sticks again, my goodness, he can get you out of Egypt in slavery. Again, this is all review from last week. God is calling Israel to trust him, to live with faith and hope in him, to trust the process, to release the present into his hands. God was demonstrating his power to Israel doing in front of Moses and then later in front of the nation of Israel, doing in real history, doing in reality what Egypt could only dream of doing. God, through all of these miracles where he was using Egypt's greatest desires and greatest hopes and dreams, all of the claims of their culture and their gods and their pharaohs against them, to crush them, to destroy them, He's lifting up his name before Israel, his people, so that they would trust in him. He's shouting, he's screaming to them. He's like, look over here with me. I do in real life what the world can only promise in fantasy and in fiction. But the deal that blows my mind is that Israel struggled. Israel struggled. Because reality is funny like that. Fantasy is an oversimplified caricature, a one-dimensional view of reality. And that is so much easier, more elegant to believe and trust in than the complexity and messiness of real life. Remember my story at the beginning? me on the motorcycle in my mind versus me on a motorcycle in real life. Me in a motorcycle in my mind, like I knew how to balance. I wasn't worried about things like shifting gears or managing a throttle or sitting on a bike that had a whole lot of torque and I'm on gravel. None of that. No, it was like wind through my hair slowly walking away from explosions that weren't my bike that was on fire, but just explosions in general and looking like a boss. But reality, I'm trying to manage a million different things that I've never done before. And I'm scared out of my mind. That's the difference between fantasy and reality In fantasy. Everything goes so smoothly, so easy. In fantasy, obstacles are easily overcome. You already know the outcome before you begin. But reality is far, far more complicated than that. Here's why. First, in reality, you're there. You, the real you, not, not, not fantasy you, not superhero you, not omniscient, all-wise you, the real, actual you. You're me in the camp parking lot, trying to not run into trees. Reality has the presence of people and people make choices and people get to choose and often people are stupid. Second, in reality, unlike fantasy, there's the presence of struggle. Reality always has fight in it. There always will be opposition in real life from the devil, 
from the world, from other people. Life's a fight. I'm not trying to be a downer here, but honestly, like, what I have learned and what I have experienced going through what we've gone through as a family, my wife's illnesses, her mother's illnesses, my son's life-threatening allergic reactions, respiratory distress, that's happened multiple times. Life is a fight. And there always is something out there trying to donkey kick you in the head as you go about trying to accomplish God's will and God's plan for your life. Nothing important is easy. In fantasy, it's simple. It's easy. If there is a fight, it's not that hard. In reality, you bleed your own blood. You, you, get, you get hit. You get stabbed in the back. You got a claw and you got a fight. Nothing important is easy. And if we're going to be the kind of leaders that God wants us to be, we cannot lose hope at the first sign of trouble or the 10th sign of trouble or the 100th sign of trouble. Reality dictates to us that sometimes things get worse before they get better. In fantasy deliverance, Moses goes in to Pharaoh's throne room and is like, let my people go. Watch this. Boom, snake. And Pharaoh's like, oh, no. What are we going to do? Of course you could leave. And everybody just leaves. And this, that's it. 400 years of slavery gone because Moses went in and did a thing with a snake and then it became a stick and everyone got scared because snakes are scary. That's not how it happened. In reality, Pharaoh hits back hard. It's a liver shot. Exodus chapter 5, 1 through 8, 13 through 14, you can read it. It tells you the story. They go in, they're like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, why? And they're like, because I am said so. And Pharaoh's like, I have no idea who that is. I don't know what I am. Why are you taking these people from their work? They're lazy enough already. And then Pharaoh commands the taskmasters of the people and the officers saying, you no, shall no longer give people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks that they made before. You shall not reduce it for they're idle. They're, they're lazy. Therefore they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the man that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. In other words, what, what Pharaoh does is like, oh, you want to leave? I'm going to make your life worse. You want to escape this slavery? I'm going to make it harder for you. Make bricks with no straw. Go find your own straw but I'm not going to drop your workload. And it became brutally hard. It became more vicious, more laborious than before. And the people go after Moses. They're like, what are you doing? You haven't helped anything. You haven't helped us at all. They had been suffering. Their children had died. And now they were dealt another blow. And it feels cruel. I can empathize 
with their flight. I mean, can't you? They wanted deliverance, and they wanted it right away, and now it's not happening. They wanted deliverance on their own terms. They wanted to be able to leave in the easiest, least conflict way possible, and that's not how it was working out. So God in love responds. He says, therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I am that I am. I'm Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of Egypt, of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. God says to them what he said to Moses at the burning bush. I am. I'm present. I'm here. I'm God. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you as my, as my people. I'm going to be your God, and then I'm going to walk you into this amazing promise, into this incredible land, and it's going to be yours. So just hang on. Hang tight. Trust in me. Like, Let's get through this together. There's a process in place here. But verse 9 of Exodus 6 gives us the heartbreaking reaction of Israel. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't believe. They couldn't trust what God had said because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. They were like, we prayed for it to get better, and now it's worse. How's this work, God? We pray to you, and now we got more problems? They were in anguish. Their emotions overwhelmed them. Their hearts were crushed, and this was cruel. Pharaoh was being cruel, and this anguish in their spirits, drowned out any other possible realities or hope that life would get better. They let this anguish roll in their minds like a flash flood and drown whatever faith they had left. The emotional impact of their crisis was now becoming a filter in their minds that defined their reality. See, as hard as it was, the faithful response would have been for Israel to not deny their grief, not deny their suffering, admit that they were hurting, admit they were struggling, admit they were full of grief, but to, at the same time, pull their head out of the immediate moment and gain some perspective. To think through a lens of faith that Pharaoh's scared. He's tripping out. He said, we're many. That's the same problem that, that the first Pharaoh said 400 years ago, that they tried to enslave us. Pharaoh's scared. Otherwise, why would he be fighting us so hard? He calls us lazy, but he also said that we're everywhere. That's why we have to be enslaved. Maybe despite all of his bluster, Pharaoh doesn't feel that powerful. 
On top of this, it stinks right now, but God made us a promise. And and we're going to trust that we're going to trust that promise. This is what we prayed for. This this is what we've been crying out to God for. Now we have a deliverer. Now we've got there's a vision in place now of what we're going to accomplish with God's help. We prayed for God to make a way and all of a sudden now that way is here. And of course the enemy is not going to let us go without a fight. This is sure not what we expected. Well, but we still believe that there is a process that we are going through. God will take us somewhere. What they needed to give God in this moment, to summarize all of that, is their trust. They needed to give God in that moment of pain and anguish and cruel bondage their absolute total trust. Because if they were ever going to trust God with their future, they had to give him today. If they were ever going to have faith for a promised land at some point, they were going to have to trust God in the land of their anguish. If they were ever going to have the trust for God to lead them to a place they had never seen, never been to, they were first going to have to give God control over what was right in front of them. I'm sure you're picking up kind of what I'm laying down here. But to make it personal, if you're ever going to trust God with your future, you've got to give him today. We always have a choice to decide to trust God without exception or to put God into a fantasy myth of our own making. We're like, God, I'll trust you if you do it my way. God, I'm all with you. Here's, here's, here's how I see it playing out. So if you can do your thing exactly the way I want it to go in my head, then, we, then we're cool. We, we're good. I'll obey you as long as you keep the journey free from pain. As long as there's no moments of, of anguish of heart and spirit. God, I just want you to get this over with already. So let's let's hit fast forward. Deliver me, but don't test me. Set me free, but don't prove me in the process. To be honest, I'm not really interested in the process. I'm not interested in growing and learning about anything. Anything about you, anything about myself. I'm just looking for you to fix it sooner than later. Who has the final say? Who has the final say? That's not just for the Pharaoh. That's for you too. You understand? That's not just for Egypt. That's for Israel. That's not just for the world. That's that's for your own life. You have to decide right now to pull your mind out of the anguish of your own spirit long enough to take God at his word. You got to talk back to all of your fears and all of your emotions, and you have to stop being so fixated on the immediate present that you lose all perspective on whose you are and where you are going. And ultimately, if you're ever going to trust God for your promise, you need to trust him with your present, whatever that is. For some of you, you are a leader. And you are wanting to grow, if you're a youth pastor, you're trying to grow your youth ministry. You have this, this vision from God of what your youth ministry could be. 
But right now, you're dealing with all kinds of junk. You have to let God lead you through that and deal with that if you're ever going to trust him with the future that you believe you're headed into. Right now, our local church is growing and God is moving. We are also in a pretty rough neighborhood. And there's all sorts of hurdles and issues that we have to overcome every single Sunday morning from used needles all over the parking lot to, um, thankfully, it's been good for a few weeks, but major narcotic distribution in a building right beside us and a brothel on the other side of us. Like, we're dealing with some stuff. There's, There's some heavy things going on. We've been threatened. Our ushers have stopped guys from beating up people that owe them money in our parking lot in the middle of service. Like, it's crazy. But here's the deal. We've got to trust God to give us revival and to make his name known where we are at if we're ever going to be able to trust God in a better neighborhood with a new building. Because better neighborhoods and new buildings are not without their own problems. You may be in a particular phase of your life and maybe you're single and you're believing that God is, is going to lead you to somebody and you're going to get married and you're going to have a family and you're never going to get there if you don't learn how to trust God in the place that he has you now. Maybe you're a young married couple and you're wanting to have kids and you're running into fertility issues. You have to learn how to thrive in the issues you now have because once you get into the land of promise, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden life's going to be perfect once you get what you're praying for. Whether it's revival, whether it's new campus, whether it's a change in relationship, a change in your family, a change in your location, a career advancement. If you can't trust God where you're at right now, you're not going to be able to handle what comes next. You need to have perspective and faith that you're not going to be here forever. Yes, that God is leading you somewhere. And because of that, you're completely okay with giving God control over what is going on right now. And the sad fact of Israel is that Israel couldn't do that. Israel wasn't able to pull themselves out of their emotional tornado long enough to see through the eyes of faith. And so as a result, no matter what God did, at each moment of pressure, they lost their mind. They intellectually embraced that God was the I am, absolutely. But once it all got crazy, once uncertainty was introduced, they collapsed and lost heart. Israel never learned the lesson in Egypt, and as a result, they struggled at each challenge along the journey. So they leave Egypt, and then Pharaoh starts chasing them, and they're like, oh my goodness, you let us out here to die. And at no point was anyone like, yeah, but remember the death angel that came and and took a whole bunch of people out? So I'm sure the army's a lot smaller now, and if God could do that like two days ago, he's gonna, we're going to be fine now. Also, there's this giant pillar of fire in the sky that's just moved in between us and the army, so I'm pretty sure we're going to be fine. No, no, they didn't because they didn't learn the lesson in Egypt. And then they cross the Red Sea, and then they run into water. They run into food. They get angry because they have to fight now. And they want to go back to Egypt because they never learned how to trust God in that, in that moment when, 
when Pharaoh was like, we're taking the straw away, make your own bricks, because they never learned how to trust God then, at each moment of the journey, their faith failed them, and they were slowed, delayed massively in inheriting the future promise that God had wanted to give them. To the extent that when we read the words of the apostles about that generation that left Egypt in the New Testament, the apostles say, don't be like them at all with your faith. Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The sad and convicting reality of the story of Exodus is because of their struggle to believe, they were delayed and some were prevented from entering their promise. I mean, God did lead them out of Egypt, but they spent needless time. They wasted years walking around in circles in the desert until every last person who left Egypt died, save two old men who still believed. So what's my point in all this? Don't be like Israel. Don't delay your entrance into the plan and purpose God has for you because you can't give God your anguish right now. God is not harsh. He is merciful. He is loving. He is gracious, and, is, and he's kind, but he's only able to take you as far as your faith will let him. God always moves at the speed of your faith. And whoever this is for, whether you're in a crisis right now, whether you're in anguish of spirit and cruel bondage, or maybe something will happen in the future and you'll have to go back and listen to this episode again. I want you to hear me. I know it's hard right now. But pull yourself together long enough to say, God, I'm going to trust you in this. Choose faith. Resolve today that I'm going to give God control of it all, and I am going to choose trust. You alone are the I am. You alone are the self-existent one, and thus only you, God, get the final say. Egypt's not in charge. My problems aren't in charge. Drama's not in charge. Haters aren't in charge. Sickness is not in charge, but also neither am I. I'm not in charge anymore either. Look, I I don't know who this is for, and I promise you we're going to get back to the productivity and scheduling, how to increase capacity stuff in the next couple of weeks, and we got some great interviews lined up. But honestly, in prayer, I felt that I had to drop these two episodes in at this particular period for somebody who listens to this podcast and challenge you and say to some leader who's irritated and struggling and who doesn't think God is where you're at right now, and if he would just hurry up and move your life forward, then, you know, everything would be better. I really felt like in prayer just to say, like, don't do not do that anymore. That's, that's letting the anguish of your spirit, the tornado of your own human emotions, dictate 
your belief and trust in God. You've got to settle this once and for all. God has the final say, not me. God gets to decide if this is a process that I'm going to go through or if this is going to be instantaneous deliverance, not me. Don't delay. Whoever you are, leader, pastor, young adult aspiring to grow, don't delay your entrance into whatever God has for you next because you're refusing to trust him now. Reality is messy. It is complicated and it's a fight. But aren't you tired of your faith teetering on the edge with each point of trouble? It's time for you to stop falling apart over the same issues again and again and again and again and again and again. And you got to put it all in his hands. So maybe thinking at this point in the podcast, okay, so what am I supposed to do now? How do I, how do, I do this? I, I want to do this. I want to get out of this anguish of spirit. I want to I get this perspective. I want to be able to trust God with right now so that I don't delay his leading me into the next level of faith and ministry and leadership he has for me. What do I do, Adam? First thing you need to do is you need to read Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. I won't read it for you. I want you to read it on your own. And in the story, Asaph is talking about how he was ready to give up, how his faith was all messed up, and he did not understand why he should continue to have trust and faith in God and be as dedicated as he is because he looks around and everybody who's living the opposite of how he is living is thriving and his life, it stinks. Until he gets to verse 17 where he says, I went to the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. He went into God's presence and he got a perspective that had eternity attached to it. And then he begins to repent. And then he begins to praise and confess faith and say, God, you're going to take care of me. I was foolish. I, I, I was like a beast before you, but you never gave up on me. I'm always with you. You hold me by your right hand. Whom have I in heaven He's, but you? There's none on earth I desire besides you. My heart, my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What was Asaph saying in that psalm? He was saying, God, you have the final say. When he got into the presence of the Lord, his perspective shifted. When you find your mind lost in an unhealthy cycle of anguish and anger and frustration and life is never going to get better and God, where are you? And you need God's presence to change and challenge your perspective. We have a saying in our church that, that we repeat all the time. The Holy Ghost changes everything. We say it like multiple times a service. The Holy Ghost changes everything. And I know, I know this sounds cliche. I know it sounds like I'm trying to preach at you. But honestly, the Holy Ghost does actually change everything. There are moments in your life when you, when you can't fix yourself. There are moments in your life when your mind is messed up 
and there's not enough positive notes that you can write to yourself on the mirror for you to feel differently, to think differently. The key for Asaph was that he got into the presence of the Lord and when he was in God's presence, it changed his perspective. What you have to do if you are frustrated right now, if you're filled with fear, if you feel trapped by stuff going on in your life, if you feel overwhelmed by the place that you're in and you just want things to get better and you're not sure if you can, if you've got the faith to really, to really deal with it, you need to get in the presence of God. What you need to do is to bring all of that stuff to Jesus and let him move in your mind. Surrender the moment of crisis that you are in and say, God, help me to see beyond what I'm in right now and help me to capture a vision of where you want to take me. And trust him with that interstitial space between where you are now and where he is taking you. Surrender it all. And in doing so, you will allow God to take you from your time of anguish into your future promise at the speed of his choosing. And at no point will you delay yourself from entering into the place that he has for you because of your lack of faith. Who has the final say? Not Egypt. Not you. Jesus does. Trust the process. Trust his timing. He's the real I am. He's active. He's involved. And he loves you. Thanks for listening. You have a great day.